Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. And this is part four, and the title of my sermon today is The True Religion of Peace, because you've heard a lot about the religion of peace. If you've been listening to the news In the past two, three, four, five years, you have heard many references to the religion of peace. I'm going to talk to you about the true religion of peace and the true source of happiness. This all comes from the last three Beatitudes that Jesus shared. They're in sets, you remember. And these last three have to do with people who seek peace in their life. And so we start off with, Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, that's very obvious that this is about people who seek peace. And for me personally, of all of the Beatitudes, this one I personally find to be one of the most difficult to get my brain around because I have a hard time understanding how it pleases God for me to be the kind of peacemaker that he wants me to be. I'll enlarge on that so you understand my concerns. First of all, to talk about the God of peace, true peace, the true religion of peace, I have to answer the question, is God a bloody tyrant? Because the accusation has been made against him by the anti-Christian, anti-Bible movement that's gaining so much steam today One of the accusations is they go to the Old Testament, they read the history of Israel, they read the many wars there, and the ruthless way in which uh, communities were slaughtered. And they come away and they say, well, God is a bloody tyrant. So we're going to answer this charge. The critics of the faith don't understand how to read the Bible. They don't understand the context of the Old Testament. And I guess in a sympathetic sort of way, If that's all I knew about God was what I read in a superficial, shallow manner from the Old Testament, I might come away with a twisted idea about what God is like. But first of all, God is not a one-dimensional God. You cannot look at one thing He did and say that's what God is. Because God has revealed Himself very emphatically as a God of mercy and a God of justice. So you can't look at just the justice of God and say he's a bloody, vengeful God. He's also a God of great love and great mercy. All the warrings that took place in the Old Testament were acts of judgment on wicked and disobedient people through the instrument of Israel, God's people. It wasn't just about two nations warring over land possession. No, it was about the people that Israel was warring against having already been judged by God as wicked people, and their judgment 
was impending, and God used Israel to bring that judgment against them. Keep that in mind when people want to make that claim about God from the Old Testament. Said, no, God judged them because of their wickedness. It was about people who had forsaken God. They were spreading their wickedness wherever they went. They had defied God. God used Israel to carry out his judgment on them. And so we understand God has a right to judge. When he says, don't do this, and people do it, he has a right to judge. That's God's right reserved to him. The next thing people fret about when they consider this question about whether God really is a God of peace or not is they they think about all the innocent women and children that were killed. And sometimes you read in the Old Testament where God had commanded Israel to go in to a, a community, a town, a village, or whatever, a land, and kill everybody. Don't leave anybody alive. And that offends people that innocent children, innocent women are slaughtered. What they don't understand is, even though that may be the case, that what happens to people here on earth is not the end of the story. There is an eternity where all things that may be imbalanced in this world are balanced in eternity. When one loses their life in this world, that's not the ultimate loss. Whenever they are, if they're innocent, women and children, and I don't understand why when people are always talking about the innocent, it's always women and children, never men. I think that's a little bit sexist, don't you? I think we ought to protest. All the innocent women and children. If God, if they're truly innocent, and God rewards them after their death because they truly are innocent of any wrongdoing, and they have eternity to enjoy uh, the blessings that God has for them, where is the short change? Nobody's been shortchanged here. So they don't understand the concept that eternity equalizes things, more than equalizes. So we do call him truly the God of peace, and we set aside all the accusations based on the Old Testament. There are numerous scriptures from the Old Testament and from the New Testament that refer to God as the God of peace or otherwise ascribe peace to him. Now, here's just a sampling. There's too many scriptures for me to read those all to you, but you can research that. Use your concordance, find the word peace, and just go read what it says. It's abundantly clear God is the God of peace. One of the most popular ones is that scripture from Isaiah, for unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. He is a God of peace. And then this one as well, which is very familiar to you in the narrative about the birth of Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, what is God wishing for men on earth? Peace and goodwill toward men. And then this one as well, when Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I find it interesting that especially in this day and age, when the the two most prominent religions in the world that are totally at odds with each other, 
Number one, Christianity, and number two, Islam. Islam is conducting the most aggressive campaign, calling themselves the religion of peace. They have no right to claim that as their title. As a matter of fact, it is far from the religion of peace. Yet Christianity, that is truly the religion of peace, that Jesus never instructed his disciples to violently go and, and promote Christianity, make disciples violently, make disciples at the threat of their life, kill them if they deserted from the faith. Jesus never taught anything ever like that. As a matter of fact, any time that they, they came close to using violence, Jesus stopped them. Jesus uh, rebuked Peter whenever they were getting a little pushy with Jesus uh, there at his arrest. And Peter pulls out a sword like any one of us would be tempted to do if we truly loved God and truly following him and truly wanted to protect him. And uh, swings the sword and, and lops off a man's ear. And Jesus stopped it right there. Had he, had he not stopped it, I'm sure there would have been more swords drawn and more blood shed at that point. But the minute his ear is, is sliced off, Jesus stops it, and he goes and picks up the ear and pops it back on, and says, we're not going to do that. That's not the way we're going to do this. Put your sword away. Now that tells us Jesus was advocating peace. Peaceful promotion of his values. Peaceful promotion of his message. And even the, the, the teachings of Paul, the theology of Paul, as his writings are full of peace. And, and even the uh, whenever he advocates when at all possible, and I think I've got this on a slide somewhere in my sermon, but, but I'm just going to throw it out right now. When at all possible, live at peace with all men. Jesus pronounced blessings on the peacemakers. He was advocating for those who seek peace rather than conflict. And that tugs at the heartstrings of the vast majority of the people in this world as, what's the world's cry? We just want to live in peace. We don't want there to be any more war. We don't want any more conflict. And we don't seem to be able to get that. Now, I started out by saying, blessed are the peacemakers, is one of the most difficult of the Beatitudes for me personally to really be able to process. And here's the reason why. When I understand that God wants me to live at peace with all people when at all possible, when I understand blessed are the peacemakers, then I have, to, I have to measure my life and everything I do to figure if I am agitating or if I am trying to negotiate for peace with people. How many of you know somebody that, are, that they're so confrontive that just by nature it seems like they live for a squabble? You know people? If these, if, 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 if these people call themselves Christians, now we've got a problem. Because Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. You understand why that comes from unsaved people. 
But if people call themselves Christians, they have no business being confrontive and trying to have a squabble at every turn. It, it, they're argumentative. They want to be right about everything. They, they, they would argue with you about a bowl of beans. They just are contentious at all times. And if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, I have to learn to conduct my life in such a way so I'm not agitating people. I'm not picking a fight with people. I'm not grouching and grousing and griping and complaining. and all. I'm trying to live at peace with you. That's difficult enough for me to do because I, I, I've grown up in a culture that doesn't necessarily value that at its highest. I mean, I, I agree that uh, we, we all agree that peace is the highest Ideal for humanity. Uh, we all agree it would be nice to have peace. But when you live in a society that hasn't really promoted peace as the highest ideal among people, it's difficult to get that out of your blood. You know what I mean? Uh, let me just give you some examples. How do I live out this life of peace in the world and the culture I live in today? The American culture, when I have been bombarded, you have been bombarded with the concept of might equals right. It has, it has infiltrated everything in our society. How many movies and television shows and stories and tales we have about violence? About the good guys defeating the bad guys? In the Western motif, the good guy wears the white hat, the bad guy wears the black hat, and the good guy shoots the bad guy, and we cheer. Yes! Good and right has won, and evil is dead. Every Rocky movie that's ever been made has been... A symbol of the good fighting the bad. The good guy beats the stuffings out of the bad guy and everybody cheers. Because it's in our culture. The World War II movies that were so popular in the mid-20th century always depicted Americans slaughtering Germans and Japanese. And in the end, when it's done, everybody watching the movie, American, feels good. And you remember how we always cheered against the Germans as we had derogatory names we called the Germans and Japanese derogatory names we called the Japanese. And we always cheered because we murdered them. And then as little boys, we went out and we made guns out of a stick or imaginary guns and we learned how to make machine gun sound. We went out and wiped out the neighborhood. And we felt good about it. Now I'm going to meddle. American football is a game that pits two teams of men super infused with steroids who go to battle with one another to score the most points. Now the strategy of the game in order to win is not just to score most points but to physically maim the key player Put him out of commission. Break his leg if you can. And therefore, now we can win because the key player is now on the bench with a serious injury. You think that's not true? Ask Lawrence Taylor. LT. His whole 
career, as he admitted, was about killing the quarterback. If I can put him out of the game, if I can hurt him, if I can maim him. Now, here's what I'm trying to say. When you've got a culture that is based on violence towards other people, then it impacts our behavior. Now it bleeds over in how we handle conflict. If we have conflict with a neighbor we don't get along with, if you're a peacemaker, you try to figure out how to peacefully negotiate with this neighbor so you can live in peace and harmony. If you're not a peacemaker, you're plotting how to get back at him. You're plotting how to have a confrontation. How if you can just have the opportunity to go and beat the stuffings out of him one time, he will be a good neighbor from now on. You want to poison his dog. You want to you want to kill his grass at his yard. You want to, you want to put a you want to key his truck. You want to do something. You want to get after him. None of that is a peacemaker. None of it. But you know why we feel good and right about doing that? Because of Rocky. Because of football. Because of everything we've learned in all of life teaches us that if we can be aggressive and we can be violent, that somehow that's good and right. We have a right to win this by force. And I've got to tell you, people, when I read the Beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, when I read Paul saying, you people, you've got to learn to live in peace, it throws me into a terrible conflict because I'm a victim of this culture. I'm one that has thought about revenge so many times. I'm one that has not always taken the peaceful path. I'm one that when I have taken the peaceful path, I go, oh, that works pretty good. And when I have not done it, it hasn't turned out well for me. You don't sleep at night. You get ulcers. You're tied in knots. You hate to see these people. Conflict is there all the time. You're just, it's, it's, you're annoyed. You're hard to get along with because you didn't settle it in peace a long time ago. I've had instances in my life where you just had to settle in peace. One time I had a neighbor that I liked the guy. I really did, but he was a rotten neighbor. I mean, he went and bought pet rabbits and turned them loose, and they came over and kept eating my garden. How do you deal with a neighbor like that? He backed out of his drive, which he had to go in his drive and turn 90 degrees to go into where he parked. So when he backed out, it would be headed toward my yard. I came out and my yard, I had worked so hard on seeding that yard and getting the weeds out of it and just making it a beautiful, gorgeous yard. And I come out and there are tracks. It was wet. There are mud tracks into my yard about 30 feet into my yard. He had backed up. Somebody had backed up into my yard and then pulled out. And I'm just sick of all the work I've put into this. And then just run through my yard. Now, what do you do when, you know, you figure the way to really settle this, go over there and say, you're going to fix my yard, buddy. I spent money. I spent time. I mean, get out there and fix the yard and don't ever do it again. Now, come on. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you, that's what you would want to do? Of course. Of course we want to do that. Rocky, football. We're going to take the aggressive approach. We're going to go and break his leg. 
So I just replanted the tomatoes. I just re-landscaped. I just kept my mouth shut until one day the neighbor came over and he had a homeless man living with him and he said, uh, I just got news. He called the man's name said he's dying. He said, you think you could come over and talk to him? And I said, absolutely I can. I went over there and I talked to him and I said, I understand that the doctors have not given you just a few days to live. And I said, I'm going to talk to you about eternity. And if you don't want to hear this, you tell me to walk away. And I use this line all the time with people that I don't know if they want to hear or not. I said, if you, if you don't want to hear this, you tell me to hit the door and I'll leave you alone. He said, no. He said, talk to me. And I had an opportunity to lead him to the Lord. And that neighbor of mine who ran those ruts through my grass, who set his rabbits loose on my tomatoes, that neighbor of mine that I wanted to throttle, standing there with tears streaming down his cheeks because I've been able to come over and lead somebody to the Lord that he brought into his home. You know what? The way of peace is always the right way. It's always the right way. Grass and tomatoes don't measure up to a soul that's born into eternity when God gives you an opportunity with peace. I struggle with this thing. I struggle with this. I struggle with it. I miss it too often when I could have chosen peace. But I didn't. But those times when I did, how well it turned out. So what am I going to do with this pesky beatitude to live this out in a practical way? Because it gets even more difficult when we have a nation here that we are in constant conflict with the world. And we have politicians on both sides of the aisle that are saying what we need to do is go to war and kill some people and it'll be a safe place. And you've got politicians on the other side saying if we'll just be nice to them, they'll go away. And you know, it can be divided in your opinion today on what we ought to do. And then I've got people here that are ex-military. You went and you served in the military. You knew going into the military, there's a possibility. You might have to shoot somebody and kill them. Somebody that's not responsible for the conflict between these nations. Somebody that's got a wife and children at home. You knew that going in. You signed up anyway. You said, I'm going to go do it because I am serving my country and I want my country to be safe. And I'm going. And sometimes, you know, the conflicts we've gotten into have not even had any justification. We're just, we're just in it. And it divides our nation. And how am I supposed to feel about that? And if you're waiting for me to tell you how you should feel about that, you're going to be waiting a long time. I don't know how you should feel about that. I know how I feel about it. I know I'm conflicted. I know I want to live in peace. I know what I want to live in a peaceful country. I know that there's, there's two or three ways that people think we ought to accomplish that. One is do nothing. Don't confront your enemy. I mean, the Bible actually says, Jesus says, not, not to engage your enemy, not to confront him, not to have conflict with him. Just don't do it. So do you put that on a national scale? Do you say, therefore, because Jesus spoke to me, that that's what our nation ought to do? Or do you just go out and just ruthlessly slaughter everybody who's a threat to the world, and now you have peace? Or do you just build up your armament so that nobody wants to bother you because you're bigger and better than them? And these are all ways, but we're struggling. We are struggling with the concept of how do we attain peace. And here's what I'm going to tell you about it. I'm going to tell you that you had better approach this subject with an idea of, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond to this? I don't want you to base it on, well, this is what 
my family expects me to believe, this is what I think my country expects me to believe, or this is what my church expects me to believe, I think you need to keep it all in the perspective of what does God want me to do about this? And there are some people, you know, the Assemblies of God, when we were founded in 1914, from the very inception, the Assemblies of God were conscientious objectors up until about the 1960s. Did you know that? Because we would not advocate enlisting in the military going to war. Did you know that when the early church was formed, that the first 100, 200 years of the church, they were absolutely conscientious objectors. The people closest to Jesus Christ, closest to his teachings, the apostles who trained others, who trained others, though closest to Jesus, were the ones who said, absolutely, we as Christians will not join the military, we will not go to war. And I know that a lot of you people who have served in the military here today, you're going to struggle with that and say, yes, but. Yes, but what? Yes, but, that's my question. Yes, but what? And somebody's going to say, well, you're not honoring the military. I do honor those who have been very sincerely given their time and their life to do what they felt was the right thing to do. I honor you. I appreciate your service. I appreciate the sacrifice. But I'm telling you now, this Sunday morning, if we're going to talk about peace, it's time to stand back from your entire life and everything you've done and everything you thought you believed. And when you read about what Jesus wants us to, to, to do in our life and be peacemakers, it's time for you to prayerfully sit down and start reconsidering, but God, what do you want me to do? I know what I've done. I know what I believe. But at this point, I'm going to sincerely say, God, what do you want me to do? And that's the reason I say this is the most difficult beatitude. Because I don't know how we're ever going to come to a, a, a firm commitment in this unless and until we bring Jesus into the picture. It's difficult. It is horribly difficult. And that's the reason I say it's so hard to assimilate this, to be a peacemaker. Are we to think that everything Jesus taught us on a personal level needs to be applied on a national level? And if you believe that, then defend that. And if you don't believe that, defend that. What do you believe and why do you believe it? But it is absolutely vitally important that no matter what conclusion you come to, you came to that because you studied what Jesus wanted you to do. You believe this is what the Bible tells you to do. That's the reason this is difficult. The blessing of being a peacemaker is to be called the children of God. The second point is blessed are those who are persecuted. Now, there are, this is a blending of two. There are three, but this is the blending of two. Because first of all, he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness. And then he goes right into the next verse and said, blessed are you when men will revile you, persecute you, say all manner against you, uh, of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. For so persecuted they the prophets which are before you. So he, there's two different ones there. There's a blessed for those who are persecuted for righteousness. And there's a blessed are those who are persecuted for my namesake. So you would say, what's the difference? They're the same genre. One is a general blessedness. Just for righteousness, standing up for what's right, standing up for justice. And those of you who are committed to standing up for what is right and standing up for what is just, there will be 
opposition to that. And Jesus recognized that. But then the second one is more specific. It's still righteousness. But he said, to this point, some of you have been persecuted for standing up for righteousness, for standing up for justice. All through the Old Testament, there were opportunities to do that. And Jesus had not yet introduced the New Testament. He hadn't died. There's no testament without the death of the tester, right? So he had not died yet. There was no New Testament yet. Even though it's recorded in what we call the New Testament, he had not made that change of covenant yet. So he's still talking under Old Testament terms here. And he's saying people who have stood up for what's right, what's just, sometimes you take, you take opposition for taking that kind of a stand. But he said from this point forward, it's going to get worse. Because if you choose to follow me, you will also be persecuted for following me and the righteousness that I am preaching. One is general, one is specific. Both of these have to do with preferring peace. The reason you're persecuted, the reason he's speaking about them is these are the people who are persecuted and accept the persecution. That's one concept that is hard for us today. Because we go back to my opening statements about the culture we've been raised in, that we shouldn't have to be persecuted. When we're persecuted, we keep saying, Lord, why do I have to be persecuted? Take this away from me. I don't want to be persecuted. Come and ask pastor pray for me and be persecuted. I don't want to be persecuted. But you know, it's a part and parcel of standing for right and following Jesus. It is a normal part of life. If you do that, you will be persecuted. Period. Get used to it. Don't whine. It's going to happen. Now, I'm not saying you won't be persecuted if you don't do that, because someone will always find something to persecute you for. But being persecuted for righteousness and being persecuted for Christ's sake has a benefit and a blessing. This second level of persecution, persecuted for Jesus, we're seeing so much of that, and it's in the news today. Pastor Saeed, persecuted for Jesus, probably the foremost example on my mind, who's rotting in prison today, severely beaten, severely tortured, because he loves Jesus. That's his crime. He loves Jesus. But in this second one, when Jesus said, Blessed are you, when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Now let's break that down. I was talking about Pastor Saeed and being tortured, imprisoned for his faith. I don't think any of you here have ever been imprisoned for your faith. But that doesn't mean you haven't been persecuted. Because when you read this, blessed are me, me, you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Persecution by Jesus' own definition, includes slander and harassment, character assassination, say all matter of evil against you falsely, character assassination. And those are listed alongside the word persecution, which includes any other kind of hardship that might be levied against you, such as a boycott, if you have a business, a loss of your job, because of your faith, harassment, imprisonment, lawsuit, simply because somebody doesn't like you as a Christian and they're out to get you, physical violence against you, threatenings against you, 
And with that definition in mind, that means that we are seeing persecution against the people who stand for righteousness and stand for Christ here in the United States right now. And it is news weekly, if it is not news daily, that persecution is here. I read a book about 15 years ago about the coming persecution of Christianity. I read it. I believed it. But in some sense, I thought I probably will never live to see this. But, you know, to go back and read that book again about what they saw shaping up as the persecution of Christians coming to the United States, I thought it's horrible. I believe it's going to happen. I'm just not sure it's going to happen in my lifetime or this quickly. And it is here. At that time, it was prophecy, so to speak. Prediction, so to speak. And it is absolutely here today. And if you work in a workplace where somebody knows that you're a Christian and they are treating you spitefully and doing things to you that you know it's simply because you're a Christian and they hate you, you are being persecuted. And Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are the persecuted for my name's sake. There's two things that are blessing about that. First of all, you're in good company because so persecuted they the prophets which were before you that put you in a very special class. If that means anything to you. Number two, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, which is just a generic way of saying, like, uh, they're the children of God, now theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that you are not only God's, but you've got a great inheritance. You're going to gain when this is all over. So when you feel persecuted because of your faith, you just remember... God has something greater for you as a reward because you have stood for what is right, what is just, what is holy, and you've stood for Jesus Christ. It's not easy to take a stand. It's not easy to display your Christianity all the time, everywhere. It's not easy. A pastor acquaintance of mine, I can't call him a friend, I've never met him, but I am acquainted with him through a ministers group that we both belong to on Facebook and we have just chatted a little bit together never met him in person but he had a youth pastor at one time in his ministry that had moved on to another church and that youth pastor in that church had a student in the youth ministry and they took a picture of this student at uh, see at the flagpole it was a real picture it was not a stock picture, real picture. And it was one single girl at the flagpole, down on her knees, praying at the flagpole. Nobody else showed up. One girl, she shows up, nobody there. And I have to imagine in my mind, how many young people would have went there, nobody showed up, and just leave? And I thought that is one of the most touching pictures I've ever seen in my life. That one single girl shows up. Nobody's here. She thinks, well, I came to pray. And so she gets down, oblivious to anybody else who may be passing by, oblivious to any criticism she may receive. It doesn't matter. I came here to pray. A giant in the faith of a young teenager unafraid to bow her knees in public to her Christ. I wonder how many young people we have like that.
unafraid, unashamed. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and of salvation. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. There will be persecution. My final point is this. Now that we've concluded the Beatitudes, I want to go back to that definition of, ha- of blessed. Do we understand what it truly means to be supremely blessed? I touched a little bit on this to begin it because I wanted to have a, have a working definition as we went through this of what it means to be supreme, supremely blessed by God. Blessed because we're poor in spirit. Blessed because we mourn. Blessed because we are meek. Blessed because we're peacemakers. Blessed because we endure persecution. Blessed. So let's really bring it home. As I mentioned, the word blessed has many dimensions that far supersede anything we typically think of in our American culture. Uh, And people have substituted the word happy for blessed when they're trying to explain the Beatitudes. That's not entirely wrong, but it, it doesn't quite get it because we have distorted the meaning of happy. That's the reason it doesn't work so well. As a matter of fact, Young's literal translation puts the word happy in there because when he made that translation, it made sense to him in his day, in his time. But American happiness taints that. So when we use the word happy, happy you, you, we get all kinds of wrong ideas about what it means to be happy whenever these things happen to us. When our Amer- and here's, here's an example. When our American forefathers wrote the Declaration of Independence, they made this argument. Human beings were endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, you put that in the 21st century context, and in many people's minds, that last line is almost biblical Scripture. I have a right to the pursuit of happiness because the Constitution says I do. The problem is they don't understand what happiness is. They understand what Americans think happiness is, and that's where it gets all messed up. They have this deep-seated conviction that we have a right to be happy, and that right to be happy has spawned more unhappiness in this day and age than you can possibly imagine. Because... The pursuit for happiness in the way that we understand happiness today causes a great dissatisfaction with anything that doesn't make us happy. And anything less than unbridled, unbroken, unfettered happiness, we've been brainwashed, we've been spoiled. I had a young man I grew up with. He was, I I think, the first one in our little group in our church to get married. I was the last one in our little group to get married. I had to wait for Anne to get of age. The first one to get married, several years down the road, I hear he's getting a divorce. I call him up. What are you thinking? You know, we talked. I used every persuasion on him I could. He had his mind made up. You know what he finally told me? Because he couldn't get rid of me. He finally told me this. I have a right to be happy. And I'm not happy. 
endowed by the creator of a certain inalienable rights, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to be happy. I have a right to be happy. Here's five truths about happiness that I think you need to consider. Number one, happiness is a subjective feeling about ourself, our life, and our circumstances. That's what happiness has become today, a subjective feeling. Depends on your circumstances. Number two, for the typical, typical American, we have come to view happiness as a God-given right. Number three, the pursuit of happiness is not a finite activity. It's not something that you find it and then you possess it and you're done pursuing. The pursuit of happiness is to continue to live your entire life chasing something that you believe is ultimately going to be making you happy. Nobody thinks in finding earthly happiness once and for all and then quit pursuing. Everybody thinks in terms of pursuing until they die because they can't find it. Number four, happiness is largely based on comparison. Our pursuit of happiness generally is driven by our desire to have what others have or to have more than others have because if we have less than others, it often spawns unhappiness. And interestingly enough, studies show that happiness starts diminishing after we have more than the necessities of life. Can you imagine that? Once you've got your food and your shelter and what you need, your bills are paid, you're at your peak happiness potential right there. And then when you begin to think, I want more, that's when you're, in this, you're on this squirrel cage. You're in this endless pursuit of something that will never satisfy. Number five, people tend to generate happiness through their imagination. They dream of a happy place. They dream of a happy situation in life. They dream of possessing things that they know they will never possess. They dream of having experiences they know they will likely never have. The reason people live in a fantasy world is because they found out they can generate a make-believe world that brings them a little bit of happiness. And all these facts put together help us understand that to be blessed by God is so much different than what American happiness is all about. Earthly happiness, circumstantial happiness, comparative happiness, make-believe happiness. And none of those things was Jesus saying when he said, blessed are you. It's something entirely different than American cultural happiness. Earthly happiness is temporal at best. The pursuit of that kind of happiness is a feeble attempt to fill a void in your soul that I promise you people only God can fill. And you can spend the rest of your life chasing, but you'll never find it until you finally surrender to Jesus and let him fulfill your life like only he can do. True, happy, and supremely blessed people are those who live in humility, those who love justice, and they stand for righteousness. Those who pursue peace at all cost. All to the glory of God. See the entire Sermon on the Mountain. As we continue through this. The entire Sermon on the Mount. Is virtually a demand and a call on discipleship. 
It's a call to understand and practice the Jesus Creed. And we've gone back to this again and again. This is the basis of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Love God and love others as you love yourself. And in Jesus, in preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he keeps hitting this. Love God first. Love your neighbor like you love yourself. And it guides every principle in there in his sermon. Those who are truly happy, truly love God, truly love themselves, and truly love others. Bow your heads.